come now as we consider your word for our lives. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. <laughs> it's so good to be with you this morning, and I'm so happy to be uh, here talking with you all, giving you a little sermon about this uh, famous reading. If you guys are taking notes and you want to put a title for this sermon, hint, hint, wink, wink, um, the sermon title today is The Prodigal Father and His Prodigal Sons. This story is one that I heard from a very long time. I, some of you all knew my story. I spent the first eight years of my existence in church. And then from the age of eight till 14, my folks left the church. Um, and then from the age of 14 up until now, I have been, again, a church man. But I, I remember from a very young age hearing about the story of the prodigal son, seeing cartoon movies about some man who had squandered all of his father's wealth, and he eventually, because he spent it all, went to live with pigs and even was tempted to eat some of the pig troughs. Now this story is famous. We typically call it the prodigal son. But what I want to submit to you all today is that the story of prodigality is actually a shared trait amongst all three of the main characters of the story. We call the son a prodigal because he has great wealth and he uses it extravagantly in a way that brings dishonor to his family. <clears throat> but in the story also we hear about a prodigal father who gives extravagantly and recklessly a love for his son who doesn't deserve it. And even, even furthermore, we have another son who has an incredible uh, prodigious nature in that he is given so much of his father's wealth and yet squanders it and using it only for himself and not for his brother. And so what I want to do is take some time to talk about these three characters and ask us while we read through this, this conversation, who are we in the story? And how do we treat the other characters in the story? So just to set it out, when Jesus tells a parable, he intends the parable to have meaning for us to unpack. It's not supposed to simply be a story that sort of sits on the wall and we think the story of the prodigal son. The, the, the prodigal son is supposed to be a story that's about us. It's about God. It's about God's kingdom. And so rightfully, when we read about the father in the story, we can make a quick computation, a quick calculation and say, the father in the story ought to, to some degree, relate to our father in heaven. When we talk about the story of the, I'm going to use scare quotes here, bad son, right? That this is supposed to be the person who knows that they're supposed to be part of the kingdom of heaven, but they've gone off and done, done the wicked thing. And then we can also talk about the, more scare quotes, good son as the one who stays faithfully beside the father and persists in his duties, remains part of that kingdom of heaven. So let's first talk about the bad son. We think about this bad son for three very important reasons. First of all, that bad son had bad deeds. And if we just read the story on the surface, the story sounds bad enough. But if you know a little bit about Bible nerdery, which is why I'm here to you, for you today, 
If you didn't feel like you were nerdy enough, I'm going to give you all the equipment you need to think and know that you can actually be nerdy in your life. If you want Tolkien facts, I'll be here after the church service. I can talk to you about Lord of the Rings also. This bad son was the younger of the two sons. And you might say to that response, what does that matter, Father Dan? But within a Hebrew household, the first son had the first claims on the inheritance of the household. So when the father would eventually die, or when the son would eventually get married, the firstborn son has the first claim on all of the gifts of the household. Now, that's important, and who receives the first gifts is important, because God sets it as part of his law. That when you and I give gifts to God, which gifts are we supposed to give? The very first fruits of our fields. Why? Because the first stuff that we pick from our fields is always the best stuff. It's the last little leftovers that we leave that we pick up last. I know this because I have four kids, right? The oldest kid, he's always wearing new clothes. The fourth kid, I'm not even sure we can call them clothes now because they've been worn up so much. The implication is important here, that the younger son, trying to be the first one to claim his inheritance, is doing something out of order within the life of the Hebrew family. This would have been an incredible offense, not only to the brother, but to the father. Furthermore, if you are part of a Hebrew household, one of the things that is your identity to do is to live amongst other Hebrews. And look what he does. As soon as he gets his inheritance, what does he does? He, do, he travels far, far away. This is verse 13 of Luke chapter 15. A few days later, the son gathered all he had. He traveled to a distant country. He's not interested in following Torah, the law of God. He's not interested in keeping the feast of going to the temple. Now that he's got all of this lavish wealth, what does he want to do? Get away from all those weirdo religious types. This is a huge huge threat to the family. That is a direct offense. It causes people to talk about the father. What's wrong with that father that his son is such a nincompoop? Third, not only does he leave, go to a distant land, but once he arrives at that land, he doesn't invest it in good capital ventures. He squanders it. And he squanders it not on only providing wealth and property, finding all the best wives in the world to collect to himself, but he does it by simply living a dissolute life. Or the, the brother says it like this, he has devoured your property with prostitutes. Now in the ancient world, taking on a prostitute was a huge dishonor for your family. And there's multiple levels of dishonor within prostitution, but the specific way that he used the property was not to honor his father and create more offspring, but instead just to live frivolously for his own pleasure. He spent it all, and if all of that weren't bad enough, we have our kosher laws, that above all animals that the Jews would revile and consider dirty, it was swine. And so what does this kid do now that he's fallen on bad times? He's so disgusting, he's so pitiful, that he finds pig food desirable. We're talking about a kid who has hit absolute rock bottom. He's dishonored his family, he's dishonored himself, he's dishonored his God and his people. Now notice here, in the middle of that story, 
all of a sudden, there are just a few crucial words, okay? Listen to these words. Excuse me. Verse 15. He went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to, to his fields to feed the pigs. He would have gladly filled himself with the paws that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. Now listen to verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, My father's hired hands have bread. Notice here, this kid, this punk idiot, who has done everything to ruin his life, all of a sudden snaps out of it. He comes to himself. Now here's the second thing, the second part that we know about this bad son. Not only does he do everything in his power to, to make his life difficult, but once he has hit rock bottom, or trough bottom, one might say, he all of a sudden realizes his situation and decides to change course. The third thing that makes him so outstanding is this act of repentance. Notice the three things that he says about himself. He says, first of all, my father has more than I need. Secondly, he says, um, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Thirdly, he says, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Here we have within the life of this bad son, all of a sudden, a complete reversal in his activity where he sees himself in proper relationship to the father. Now, here's the aspect of the prodigal son story that we can all relate with. Because we all know that guy, right? We all have an uncle or a brother or a sibling or a, a, a parent, parental figure who has been that sort of person that we could easily identify as the prodigal son that their sin is so prodigious, it's an embarrassment to everyone around them. We all know people who have squandered, who have been broken, who have been reckless, whose lives are marked with failure. Now, in light of that character, the bad son, let's look at the character of the father. This is a father who's very unlike me, by the way. Because if my youngest son went to me to say, hey, dad, I want my inheritance now, my response would be, what inheritance? Meaning, no. <laughs> but look at what the father does instead. When the son asks of him what is his right to gain, the father allows it. When the, father decides to, when the son decides to run off, the father doesn't chase after him. The father stays in place. And by doing this, he receives the dishonor, the shame, the recklessness of his son. And I'm just going to read between the lines of the story for a second. I imagine if we were to play out the story of the prodigal son within a longer narrative, that this father would have people knocking on his door saying, Hey, what happened to Jacob? What happened to your younger son? Why has he done this stuff and put such, what have you done as a father to bring such shame upon your family? The father receives all of it. And we hear no complaining, no wailing and gnashing of teeth. Actually, we see quite the opposite. Notice in verse 20, as soon as the son begins walking back to his father, the father was far off 
and seize him first. There's an important implication in this. That you can't see something if you're not looking for it. One thing that we can tell about our Father in Heaven is that our Father in Heaven, no matter how much we have put him, given Him shame, no matter how much we have dishonored Him, that Father is always looking out for us, always reaching out for us, always standing on the edge of Heaven with arms outstretched to prepare for us. It goes further. Notice that when He sees Him, what happens? The Father runs to the Son. He's so moved with compassion that he wraps his arms around him and he kisses him. Now this act, this act of hugging, this act of kissing, it exemplifies the very acts of hugging and kissing that we do whenever we gather together as a parish com community. Meaning what? We have peace with one another. When we exchange pleasantries, when we hug one another, when we kiss one another, what do we say? You belong to me. And all of the sickness, all of the filth, all the coronavirus, even if you got it, what's more important to me is that we embrace as one, not that we are divided from one another. If that weren't enough, the father takes it further. He says to his slaves, quickly bring out the robe, the best one, put it on him, get a ring for his finger, sandals for his feet. In the ancient Hebrew world, these three things, a robe, a ring, and sandals, were symbols of inheritance. They were symbols of status within a family. That almost always, the robe would be a symbol of some sort of honor that the father would bestow upon the children. That a ring would be a symbol of the inheritance of a father's household. That the shoes would be a symbol of a peaceful place to walk within the household of a family. And the father then sets on a whole mode for how the son is received. That notice that when the son comes back, the father doesn't require him to say 10 Hail Marys. He doesn't require him to whip himself 30 lashes. What does he say? Let's get out the fattened calf and celebrate. And he uses this strange language. The son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now notice what the father doesn't say. How bad was it? How much money is left? <laughs> how, how much shame did you really bring to my household? That the, the stance of the father is so filled with love, so filled with joy, so filled with a compassion that all of the debts that should have been counted to him are forgotten. And instead, he sees this as the great miracle of the bringing to life of someone who had been dead to him. Now, the language of life and death, of lost and found, is really key Hebrew verbiage for not part of the church and now part of the church. It harkens back to the end of the book of Deuteronomy. When Moses, preparing the Israelites to enter into the promised land, gave them the two ways forward, the, mount, the way of life and the way of death. Now clearly in his mind, this son had embraced the way of death and had been rejected by God, had been rejected by his people, had himself rejected God and his people, but in this act of repentance had begun to receive life. And then likewise, 
him being lost and his found. Now, all of this has a crucial implication for us about the Father in the story and consequently our Father in heaven. It's this. God's love for us is not based on our action. God's love for us is not based upon our deeds. No matter how wicked you've been, right? No matter how much wrong you've done in your life, God is always at the end of the field watching and waiting to embrace you. Now notice here that crucial in the story is the act of repentance on behalf of the bad son, the prodigal son. But the father in his love, in his giving of incredible riches and goods, is himself a prodigal in love. He gives recklessly a love that the son does not deserve. He gives an overabundance of a love that the son has not earned nor communicated that he ought to have. Now this is important for us as Christians because it shows to us that despite all of the sinning that you might have done before you walked in the doors here today, that this altar that we come to is an act of free grace that you didn't have to earn. All that you had to do was receive it. Okay? All that you had to do was put yourself back within line of sight of the Father to be able to be claimed a member of this table. Now we all know these parts of the stories. That this aspect of the Father is clear to us. That this bad activity of the Son is something that brings shame to us. But what we spend less time talking about, and what I, I want to really shift our focus onto for a second, is the status of the good son. Because in my frame of mind, this is for us the most crucial aspect of the story. Notice who this son was. He was most likely the firstborn, and I can tell you being firstborn, the highest class of child that a parent can have, right? We always say firstborn, bestborn, you know, synonymous phrases. My wife and I are both firstborn children. We know what it's like to be the best. And look at, look at the work of this firstborn. He has never left the fields. He has never, according to his own claim, sinned against the father. And in, in the midst of all of that work, because he is so hard working in the fields, when his father finally arrives and there's a huge party going on, the brother doesn't even know what's happening. Now, to me, this is an incredible picture of someone who is stalwart in their work, who is faithful in their deeds, and who completely misses the entire point of what it means to be a family. And I think this is part of our problem with church, y'all. We can get so stuck making sure that the altar is really well set up, making sure that when we set up all of the vestments on the altar, that everything is just ship nice. No wrinkles, no improper folds, that the burrs is on top of the veil, on top of the, blah, 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 blah. Instead, we lose sight of the question, what is church for? Why are we gathered together here in the first place? What is our orientation, our attitude toward those who aren't here now? And I think one of the reasons why the church within the United States is in such an incredibly difficult and tumultuous, I'm not going to say that word right, difficult season, is because 
we have lost sight of why we do church in the first place. And I think it comes from both ends, okay? But on the side of the faithful firstborn son, we look at those who are not churchies and we say, you guys are wicked, I want nothing to do with you. And on the side of those people who have left the side of the church, they look at all of us and say, those people are snobs who are all about doing their duty. That sounds boring and I don't want nothing to do with it. Meeting them in the middle on the two sides of these conversations is a father who is so overcome with love for his sons that he will give any price, pay any penalty so that that son can finally join into the celebration. And let's be clear, why did the older son not join in the celebration? It's because he didn't deserve it. This younger son did not deserve all the joys of heaven. Did not deserve all the joys of this party. And you know what? He's right. <laughs> He's right. Why is this son angry? Because that son sinned against him. That son dishonored him. And lastly, that that son who has been faithful, the good son, has never gotten a party like this one. And my sisters and brothers, I think this has got to be the key for us if we're understand, to understand what the future of the church is going to look like going forward. We have got to be overcome with such joy and celebration for the lost that have been found that there is not one who doesn't want to be found. That we've got to be so overcome with the clear understanding of the Father's restless love for his lost ones, that we aren't stuck in our work in the field. We are always looking on the horizon of our work for those who will come in the door. And this, to me, is the biggest misunderstanding of the life of the church. And I've, I've been commenting on this um, uh, in Bible study recently. One of my biggest beefs with Christians is that they look at the world of non-Christians and say, they are not acting Christian. Sounds silly, right? That when I see Christians comment on non-Christian conduct in the world, the response is, man, they are wicked, they are sinful, they are godless. Yeah. If you keep talking like that, if you keep thinking about the godlessness of people, how evil they are, guess what you're never going to do? Give them a reason to join in the celebration, to join in the party, to join in this incredible gift that is the kingdom of God. I think this is the reason why one-third of Christians is not coming back after coronavirus. You guys know these numbers? Christianity Today just said this, uh, sent out an article last week that said one in three Christians is not coming back to church. They're not. In America. 30%, not coming back. And I think that the reason is this, right? It's because when, instead of seeing the church, instead of seeing our community as a celebration of family, as a unity of belonging, we see it as a, as a, as a meaningless obligation that is optional for us. On the other side of this, we have a father who is calling us to be united in Christ who's calling us to share in the full inheritance of his love and his mercy, to take on the robe of his salvation, to take on this ring that identifies us as co-heirs with Christ, 
and to put on the sandals of our feet, which are the sandals of peace. Now, if we're willing to receive that invitation, if we're willing to be like the Father and stand on the far end of the field, we will change the way that the, the church and even we ourselves understand what it means to be united in Christ, what it means to be the church itself. It means that we identify ourselves by the celebration of those who are dead and brought to life. Amen. Please stand as you are able.